0: Welcome to At The Intersection, I'm Marion.
1: I'm Brian, and this is a podcast about policy, culture, identity, and how all of those things intersect.
0: Yeah, and today we are talking about affirmative action and um, the Harvard admissions uh Litigation case that is allegedly not about affirmative action, but is very
1: clearly about affirmative action. I'm actually, I'm actually surprised we haven't talked about affirmative action exclusively. Like I had to yeah. look back on our past episodes. <laughs> like, are you, are you sure We've we mentioned it,
0: yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we're gonna talk about that. We're also gonna talk about um, the model minority myth, which is a big part of this whole conversation and how it impacts um, Asian American community, how it impacts non-Asian people of color in America, and. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation.
1: Yep, so stick around. All right, so zooming into kind of the specifics of this most recent. Court case that's mm-hmm. going on right now. Um, it takes place at Harvard. Um, the complaint is that um, there's a group of Asian American students um, who are represented by um, Adam Attara, mm-hmm. um who is like this guy who. Um, it's not. I think what's important to remember about this is like, it's not like a natural, like some people were like, Hey, I think I might've been discriminated against. Like this guy, that's his job is to go around and to kind of find these cases and to pursue, um, anti affirmative action policy. So he got together this group of students, um, decided that they had grounds for a lawsuit. Um, and essentially the suit alleges that, um, Asian American students were discriminated against at Harvard, um, and specifically that the university held Asian American students to a higher level um, or a higher standard than other students in their admission process. Mm-hmm. Um, so so like this is not his first case. Um, it's not the first case by this group, um, but they are kind of seeing this as an opportunity, and I think it's also important to note like, the changing dynamics of the Supreme Court. Um, this case, is it started trial on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, so Monday the 15th. Um, we're recording this on... Wednesday, so if 17th. there's any developing facts after that, like... This we, is... They will be late-breaking facts. <laughs> um, but so, like, it's not... It's it's still at federal court in Boston, um, but it's believed that it'll reach the Supreme Court. Right. Um, I don't even want to talk about this, the U.S. Supreme Court and all that.
0: we'll just say that the way it is right now, they will definitely do everything they can to make affirmative action illegal, probably. Right. Like, as much as they can do. Right. And... Their conception of affirmative action is basically anything that helps underqualified, as they put it, black and brown. Air yeah, air quotes around it. Uh, underqualified black and dark brown people in <laughs> <laughs> any sort of elite places. Yeah, um, and elite would mean you know like universities, and that can mean you know like white collar jobs, and basically anywhere that is a majority white um, field that's where affirmative action is allegedly a problem. And that also comes up in um, Adam Motara's whole argument. Like he is, not, he is not exclusively arguing that Asian American students are being discriminated against to the benefit of white students. He is saying that they're being discriminated against to the benefit of other darker people of color who should not be getting any sort of benefit. Right. Um, See so, yeah, I think there are some specific things that he said that like he's like that um, Asian Americans do quote dramatically and shockingly worse than both African Americans and Latinos in the personal ratings on Harvard's admissions like algorithm. And so things like that, like they're specifically targeting other people of color and saying, like, these people are the problem and we need to get rid of anything that is, you know, like helping them out.
1: Right. And I, I think I think it's fair to say that this is a bit of a, a tight, slight departure of kind of previous um, anti-affirmative action arguments. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think all the ones before like really popular culture, there were tons and tons and tons of anti-affirmative action arguments against, um, that came up against the president. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the president, I mean Barack Obama. Right, um. our <laughs> <laughs> once and forever <laughs> president, <laughs> Barack Obama. <laughs> um, you know, which were obviously like just steeped in racism, mm-hmm. but the idea being that, um, you know, how do you explain that this black man is, you know, editor of the Harvard Law Review? Mm-hmm. How do you explain that he has a degree from um, this university, or his wife has degrees from Princeton and all these different mm-hmm. places? And you explain them by, um, you know, by affirmative action taking the place of white folk. Right. Um, and so, like, that's kind of been, and even we can. We'll talk about it later in the zoom out, but like it's been other places than just education. But um, that's kind of been the argument so far. So this kind of like minority on minority affirmative action discrimination is new, mm-hmm. and I think that you know obviously it's intentional and strategic by taking they're trying to take whiteness out of it and say well, you know it does not have anything to do with. I'm not being racist. Right. It's about facts. Right. But that's where we'll talk about kind of mono-minority and right. this whole idea of whiteness and what it actually is.
0: And all the implicit assumption in all of these arguments against affirmative action is that there is no way that black people in particular could be qualified for something. They have to like they are innately or we are innately Inferior, and so if we make it to an elite place, it's because we were given a break that we shouldn't have been given. Right. Um, like, we we're just not supposed to be in these spaces. Right.
1: All right, so let's we'll talk about the history of. Affirmative action, and I promise I'm gonna do it in like five minutes or less. You said you're gonna put a timer on yourself. I can do that. I can actually put a timer on myself if you'd like me to. I can race against the clock. Yeah. And I can actually even edit in some like Jeopardy music. <laughs> no, if don't you do wanna that. do that? That just
0: makes me stressed out, actually.
1: <laughs> All right, so the entire history of affirmative action condensed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, really, it starts with like 1865. Um, (laughs) so like there's the Emancipation Proclamation Mm -hmm. and, um, I think what's interesting about the idea of affirmative action is in my mind it's actually rooted in like the whole concept of reparations. Mm -hmm. Um, the, you know, intellectual thought being that there's been past wrongs and we need to mitigate those Mm -hmm. by doing, um, some things that are, you know, affirmative or positive discrimination. Um, is another term from affirmative action. Um, So, like, that idea started then, fast-forwarding a century or, like, 50 years. So, like, (laughs) 1935 is the first time we actually see language affirmative action show up um, in any type of, like, federal policy. Mm -hmm. And it's actually in the context of the 1935 Labor Relations Act. And so the term affirmative action is used to actually refer to back pay that workers deserve for, you know being gypped from wages. Um, can't use that word. I know. <laughs> I realized that. <laughs> yep. All right. Um, say the last sentence again. <laughs> I feel like we should explain though why you can't say that. Why you can't say "gypsy"? Yeah. So it refers back to like it's a It's a derogatory
0: gyps- term referring to quote gypsies. Right. And it's about how I mean the idea is that Roma people are um, untrustworthy and will take things from you Um yeah, like you'll be swindled in some way by this group of people. Yeah. And that is, yeah, that is the history of the word gypped. And yeah, I think a lot of people don't know
1: that. So yeah, yeah that right. was my mistake. I feel like we should leave that in there though. All right. If we, we can, maybe?
0: No, that's great.
1: Okay. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's, the, so the first time it was really used in federal policy was in relation to, um, to labor and pay. I didn't know that. So, I got like two and a half minutes. <laughs> this is not good. All right, so modern day affirmative action yes. really starts with executive order. Um, I'm not gonna even read it because I don't have the time. 1095. Okay. That's not even right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm we're gonna record my over 10 that. Seconds. We're gonna record over that. <laughs> so, modern day affirmative action really starts with executive order 10925. Um, and that's signed by Kennedy in 1961, and the language of it says is take, uh, it's in order to take affirmative action, uh, quote, take affirmative action to assure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to race, creed, color, or national origin. So it's referring actually to um, government contractors and mm-hmm. government workers, and mm-hmm. so saying you can't discriminate along these lines um, when it comes to government contractors and government employees. It's not until a couple of years later, um, in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of '64, that it actually starts to be applied um, to kind of in a in a way that's um, that we're more used to seeing it today. Um, So, following right after the '64 Civil Rights Act, um, there's another executive order signed by Johnson in '65 that uses the language that affirmative action is to quote correct the effects of past and present discrimination. That's important. Um, So then this we have. Affirmative front of action is like set. It's an executive order. Mm-hmm. It's a directive. Um, it's applied to not only federal employees but anybody who's receiving, um, you know, federal money through contracts or whatever like that. And so then um, we the other important. It's in the Civil Rights Act as well. So it's it's law as well as executive. It's it's everywhere. It's it's in the like civics lesson. It's in the executive branch and it's in legislative branch. So the next place is the courts mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, The first place we really see it is Greggs versus Duke Power Company, um, which is one of the the biggest affirmative first affirmative action cases. What happens is that uh, Duke Power Company has this requirement that anybody at a certain job in order to be hired, you have to have a high school diploma and you have to pass an IQ test. So the plaintiffs argue that um, this policy is discriminatory towards African Americans, and it has the effect that it results in less African Americans being um, hired for those positions. The argument is that there are white people who are in those jobs who have not fulfilled those requirements, mm-hmm. um, and that the white people in those jobs who um, have not fulfilled those requirements are no less underqualified are no less qualified than the white people who have fulfilled those. Right. Um, so it's being used like at discretion and it's resulting in discriminating from African Americans. Long story short, um, the courts ruled that it is in violation with Title VII, um, and so it's a big win for, for affirmative action. Fast forward to 1978, um, UCAL versus Bakey, which is um, when this guy did not get into UC Davis School of Medicine, he was upset. Um, <laughs> And so he sued, saying that the school's affirmative action policy was um, discriminatory towards him because he's white. Um, So what ends up happening, this is kind of a turning point in affirmative action. It was ruled that um, quotas are illegal. So you can't set a set number and say we're going to have this many black people, this many brown people, this many whatever. Um, So quotas are illegal, but... um, there is a compelling interest, and it uses the words "quote compelling interest" to pursue diversity in higher ed, and that race can be a factor um, in admissions,
0: mm-hmm. um, but not a determining factor.
1: Yeah, not a determining factor. The other thing that's important is that it's it actually says that affirmative action is to be used to increase diversity because there's value in that, mm-hmm. but it's not to be used to address past discrimination. So
0: it's no longer reparations. Right, it's
1: no longer reparations, but there's value in um, diversity. And that's really, won't get into it, but that's really led through the military. The mm-hmm. military kind of makes that argument um, earlier on. And I'm not gonna, like, I don't know military history like that, but I know that the military integrated before, you know, other parts of society did. And part of their argument was that our units actually work better when they when people work with other people, like it creates better units or whatever. So interesting. Yeah. Um, we're better at killing other brown nations when our brown nations I was gonna people, say yeah, like so.
0: I don't feel great about the fact that they're <laughs> like, yeah, these kind of um dispendable or like expendable people. <laughs> like we need we need as many expendable people as possible. So let's just like Yeah integrate real quick so we can Yeah,
1: yeah anyway. The military is kind of a bedground of a couple of interesting like civil rights type of stuff. Yeah. Um, Also, I think there's also a thing about, like, class in the military eliminates a bit of that. Um,
0: That is something that my friend Marcus, who's in the armed services, like, was talking about that um, until, basically until, like, the second Bush presidency that you mostly saw just low-income people of color. Like, you saw a lot of them in the armed services, and then suddenly, after 9-11, being in the armed services was a heroic thing, and so you got started to see a lot more
1: yeah.
0: uh, white people and a lot more people from
1: middle and high incomes coming into the,
0: but yeah, that's for another episode. Yeah.
1: So, fast-forwarding 30 years, mm-hmm. um, well, like 25 years, whatever.
0: Numbers, that's not what this is about. <laughs>
1: 2003, um, Gruttner versus Bollinger, um, is kind of the next big case. It's University of Michigan's law school, um, and the case finds that the race-conscious admissions process that they had um, was not quotas. Um, it was argued that they were imposing quotas, um, but it just because it considered race as a factor amongst other factors, it was okay. So that was affirmative action was upheld and further defined, and then coming like to modern day. Um, we got Abigail Fisher versus University of Texas, better Becky known as Becky with, the Becky with the bad grades. <laughs> so as many, like this case went to the Supreme Court twice. Yep. Um, First time it went, it actually got sent back to the lower court saying that they didn't really make a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, And then the second time they upheld University of Texas. So I think the thing that's really interesting about this is that UT system has this policy where um, at the time it was 10 percent. Right now I think it's 7 percent. Of, so if you, of all the high schools in Texas, um, the top 7% of the class automatically gets into um, automatically offered admissions. Mm-hmm. and it's a way to just increase geographical diversity, all sorts, of, you know you can run the gamut of what that would actually do for your university system.
0: Yeah, because in Texas, like geographic diversity means
1: racial diversity right. in class and all these other yeah. things and language And, um, and so Abigail um, was like 12th in her class twelfth in the 12%, whatever in her class. Point was she didn't make it. <laughs> she did not have the grades. Right. She, did she not didn't have the SAT scores, policy. and she didn't get in. And she was upset and butthurt and sued and then lost. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean that's kind of like the the court history of affirmative action. Like that's the affirmative action that we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, this is all talking about higher ed. It's you know it's not just a higher ed thing. Um, at least in the workforce, uh, there's a lot of arguments that many, the majority of the benefactors of affirmative action have actually been white women yeah. in, um in the workplace, um, because it's helped to. Um, there's been federal protections for gender discriminatory policies, um, but I think it's important to note like that's been especially beneficial for white women, white women in particular, and not necessarily women of color mm-hmm. or black women. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, kind of most recently, the Trump administration has like done. This, its whole thing to you know stomp on affirmative action. Right. Just
0: dismantle it as much as possible. Right.
1: So the first thing that they did were to um, reverse a, a Obama era kind of guidances on how colleges and universities and employers should um, should utilize our you know whatever um, affirmative action, which mm-hmm. was like based on case law. You know, because you know Obama president is president. <laughs> he is a lawyer and everything. Right. And, like you know he did surround himself with lawyers and you know. Right
0: was highly trained and yes. qualified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> Weird to think that that's a thing that we ever had in a
1: president. Right, and so the Justice Department did the same thing in getting ready these guidances. And, uh, you know, both the executive branch and, well, I guess it's all the executive. The uh, the Trump administration, their argument were that it w- this was not backed up by... It was not the, the role of the executive. It was the role of the courts. And it's like, this is based on case law from the Supreme Court. Right. But, you know. <laughs> so, like, all that to say that... um there's obviously been an effort to um, signal that affirmative action will be um, attacked or ended or whatever. So that's kind of the history. I took a total of, I'm gonna tell you how many minutes it was. Um, It was not five minutes, so I apologize. I lost track of time. How many minutes
0: was it? Okay,
1: well first of all, (laughs) it was like 12 minutes, but, But um, we had some side conversations too. That's right? so true. So we can.
0: So we'll cut it down to 11 minutes.
1: I honestly think I did like eight.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Doug, like I did like facts, 200 years of history. The
0: facts don't back you up at all, but <laughs> if that's what you feel, then that's, we'll go with that version of the truth. pretty I'm, sure. I'm comfortable. I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about the cultural context that all of this is happening in, um, especially with regards to um, the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Um, And specifically I wanna talk about the model minority myth, which is something that's been around basically since the 1960s, I guess explicitly around since the 1960s. And it's the cultural expectation that is placed on all Asian Americans as a group Um, that each member of the community is smart and specifically smart at STEM, like smart at math, science, technology, that sort of thing. Um, Wealthy, hardworking, self-reliant, better at living the American dream, obedient, uncomplaining, docile, submissive, um, and spiritually enlightened. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the overarching myth. And... It sounds super positive if you just like say it without thinking about it, like, oh yeah, like it's great to have positive stereotypes about you as a person that, you know, but it's actually a pretty harmful stereotype for a lot of different reasons. Um, one being that it puts really unrealistic expectations on individuals who are in the community to live up to um, this idea that just because of your racial or ethnic background, you are automatically good at some things and these are all like things that are supported by the dominant culture, like things that white culture likes and validates. Um, So if you fall outside of that in any way, then that means that you are somehow defective or you are somehow just like not, um, you're just not a good member of your community. It also, it masks a lot of disparities within the Asian and Pacific Islander community. Um, There's some, like, if you disaggregate data just about that community, you'll see that there are a lot of things going Like, there are really high poverty rates in some Asian communities, like, especially the Burmese community, the Hmong community, and the Bhutanese community who are living in America. Like, you have much higher poverty rates in those communities than in, like, Japanese and Chinese-American communities. But if you just sort of lump all of the data together, then it looks like the Asian-American community is doing great and... Don't need any sort of support, don't need any sort of outreach. Um, also like one another example would be the wage gap that we t- you talk about the wage gap and break it down by race. Um, and Asian American women as a group are doing relatively well. I think it's something like 81 cents to the white man's dollar. But if you break that down, um, you see that, Chinese and Indian women are typically paid more than white non-Hispanic men, but you see uh, Filipina, Vietnamese, and Korean women who are facing much bigger wage gaps than the rest of the Asian community. But again, if you just sort of glom everybody together into one subcategory, then you think, oh, well, Asian Americans are doing great, there's no poverty there, There's not, like racism can't possibly exist because this is one racial group that's doing great. Um, So there's that harmful aspect, the fact that it privileges more visible and wealthier demographics and basically hides less financially successful demographics. Um, So there's that. There's also the fact that, um, yeah, like I said earlier, uh, I alluded earlier to the idea that living up to those expectations can be really harmful. And so I talked to one of my friends from college, um, Joyce, who said that she Uh, wanted to run so fast from that expectation and from that stereotype that she, you know, like she wanted to rebel and push against it and she ran straight into another stereotype that she was not aware of until she was older um, called the hair streak Asian. And this is something that you see a lot in pop culture. Um, It is portraying Asian women who are, like in order to code Asian women as rebellious and quote, not your typical Asian girl, Movies will put a bright streak of color in her hair, and it's almost always blue, purple, or pink, and that is something that, yeah, you're like, this is a she's like cool and rebellious and like maybe into punk rock, and she's not a typical like submissive, shy Asian girl, um, and so that's just another like they're just the idea that there's one way that Asian women can be, and if they're not that, then they're one other thing. Like that's another just sort of really harmful. Um, myth and stereotype. And so it can cause a lot of just like personal stress and just the same as like racism can impact anyone. Like it just, it, you internalize it and um, it's just really
1: upsetting. I think, um, yeah, I think also it's interesting thinking about like assimilation and what's required to assimilate mm-hmm. um, and how closely that's tied with capitalism. Um, and then like how it just brings in the question of like what is whiteness um, and what does it mean to be white? And so, like, I don't know I automatically think of like the Baldwin quote on um, talking about people who think themselves to be white and mm-hmm. what that actually means, um, <clears throat> which I think speaks to one things like one claiming whiteness as like not an actual; it is an idea that can be applied um, in certain circumstances into certain people in order to kind of advance or to support. Um, An explanation, or support a phenomenon, or to advance a certain cause, Mm -hmm. um, more so than it is an actual like ethnicity. Um, And so, thinking about like thinking about the 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 Harvard case, but also thinking about like the model minority myth and like what it takes to have whiteness granted onto you. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, like like I said, pulling it back to like capitalism, like how how we define the American dream and um, what does it mean? Like you know, if you are um, if you're not able to achieve that financial, whatever you're supposed to aspire to, like, <laughs> can you can you still have your whiteness? And what does it mean right. that you can't have your whiteness? Right. Um, and, and, yeah. And push come to shove, like, whiteness is not gonna
0: protect you. Like, if you don't have it, like, white people can be very clear, like, that sort of white person can be very clear about like, oh, well, you can do everything that you want to try to be as white as you can, but if I have to, I will push you out of here. Like this is this is supposed to be
1: my space. Yeah. But I also think like, you know, and we talked about this earlier that just the idea of pitting brown people against each other for yeah. the sake of eliminating affirmative action is um I mean it's a conquer and divide technique that we've seen so many times before. Yes. Um I mean especially it makes me think a lot about just like how um <laughs> How Mexican, like Mexican immigrants, Mexican Americans, um, and I won't even call them immigrant, like me- people who were actually Mexicans and living in Mexico before the U.S. like you know stole Mexico, right? Um, just like how those how uh, identities about what does it mean to be. Um, Latinx or Mexican versus what does it mean to be black and how like there's this idea or there was this idea floated that like there are limited resources and you have to battle for your place to mm-hmm. be um, like the preferred minority.
0: Right. So that was the second thing that I want to talk about how it hurts non-Asian people of color, especially Black people, that like their anti-Blackness runs through. Like if you're in America, you are part of this sort of anti-Black structure, and it is activated in I think communities of color to say like, oh, well, like, I'm, not, you know, I'm not black, so let me just like, I'm closer to white, so let me separate myself from you know, like, these less deserving minorities. And that's something that is very quickly internalized. Um, so I talked to another one of my friends, Indira, and she said that she has experienced firsthand how Asian people talk about um, how all you have to do in this country to succeed is to work hard and live the American dream. And she says, "quote We prop up our stories without talking about how systematic barriers keep Black people from success." And she said, in particular, like this Harvard case has been especially infuriating because of that, because that just this is just the act, like an explicit activation of it. Um, I honestly think that it's also something that African immigrants internalize a lot, and this is something that we talked about in our earlier episode about the diaspora. But like African immigrants who come to America, like they're like, especially like West African immigrants tend to come in from more high income backgrounds and so they tend to be either middle or uh, upper class and so like do not experience discrimination in the same way as African Americans who were born here who are descended from slaves and can internalize anti-blackness in a really harmful way and say like, oh well no, like I came here and achieved, so anybody can come here and achieve, completely ignoring the fact that the entire system is in place to keep black people from achieving.
1: And I think, I mean, even, I think it's actually, it's interesting to talk about like affirmative action as like a legal history, and then to talk about this idea of, um, of, like, it, 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 uh, Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is a justice who has consistently dissented on, uh, on decisions that have upheld affirmative action. I think there's two reasons mm-hmm. um, one, you know there are plenty and plenty of black people, plenty of plenty of African Americans who i mean it's like it's not a it's not a surprise like there are lots of socially conservative black people, yes. and the idea and this is not true of everybody like there's diversity for there's diversity of thought of ideology for multiple reasons, but a theme um that does persist is that um there's safety in proximity to whiteness mm-hmm. and so with your social conservatism, if that gets you closer to whiteness, then you're you're a bit safer. Yeah. Um, people like, white conservatives will go nuts over a black conservative saying, well, I don't think that racism
0: exists, or I don't think affirmative right. action should be a thing.
1: Right, or even, I mean, even like in a much more practical sense, like, you know, if you're working for a white person, mm-hmm. if you're saying, you know, if you're adhering to like the American dream, hard mm-hmm. work type of mm-hmm. mythology, and the person sees that you're adhering to that, Um, the hope is that they won't um, categorize you or place other stereotypes of black people onto you and they'll see you as the exception. Um, And that's a very real thing that, like, I'm not faulting people because racism is hard and, like, surviving in America is hard, but, like, that is a thing that happens as a result of all this. But, like, specifically Clarence Thomas, so there's that whole thing running through his veins. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the other part being that um, kind of a very unique personal kind of self-fear slash preservation type of thing going on where um you know his own career ha- he has to validate his own career to right. himself and to white people in right. yes. saying that it, i can't I can't affirm affirmative action because what does that say about me and me being here. Right. Um which is also ironic because he took um the spot of a black man who fought hard for civil rights. But that's but you know, whatever. You know, what I mean. Um <laughs> So I think I mean
0: yeah, self-loathing is a really toxic, powerful thing.
1: Yeah, and I think I mean I think that, I think that it just I don't know I think it just says a lot about like whiteness and, um, and violence and like survival and what brown people have and are doing mm-hmm. to survive, but then also kind of like how that goes beyond survival like beyond the immediate and really just becomes a pathos um, and how destructive that can be.
0: Yeah, because this, yeah, like you say, like this case, like this Harvard case is not about facts really in any way, it's just about pathos and it's about whiteness and trying to get proximity to whiteness and saying, you know, like, I'm supposed to be here, let me be here, these other people are not supposed to be here but I'm not like them, so like get rid of them, I'm trying to be one of y'all. Yeah,
1: I mean it's, yeah, I'm not, Yeah. Think about Bill Cosby.
0: Why do you keep on summoning the spirits of the worst
1: people? Because one of the... I I have not seen SNL this year, but... This whole year?
0: It's it's October? Like three episodes
1: in. Okay. But there was... I did see a clip from Keenan playing Bill Cosby in jail, yelling Uh at somebody, you need to get a job. And it was just (laughs) ironic and hilarious and funny. He said, you need to pull your pants up and get a job (laughs) from the jail cell.
0: No, it makes sense that... <laughs> Bill Cosby's <laughs> just gonna be surrounded by the people he hates the most in the world <laughs> and that feels like poetic justice <laughs> but anyway that's a whole tangent yeah
1: I feel like we both have experiences, like personal experiences, with affirmative action. Um, do we want to talk a little bit about that?
0: About my personal experience with affirmative action?
1: Or yes. yeah, with my and personal experience with being accused of being an af- a that's, beneficiary. I mean, I think that's... That's what you mean. Okay. That's all the... Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, when I'm talking about affirmative action, I'm, not, I, I'm thinking beyond the policy and more like what it means for black people being in white spaces. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's something, and we talked about this a little bit, we've talked about this a little bit before, but that's something that since I have been in predominantly white institutions since I was like six years old, like I went to a white flight school from first to 12th grade in
1: Charlotte. Can you define what a white flight school is? Sure,
0: it is a school, like a private or independent school that was founded after a city or state was forced to integrate. And because they're private or independent, they do not have to integrate um, the way public schools have to. And so the school that I went to was founded in 1976, I believe. Uh, Almost exactly the same year as um, a court case that forced Mecklenburg County to integrate. I was actually the first black student to go from first to 12th grade. I was the first black lifer that the school had um, because we were not supposed to be there at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and so You're yeah. You're messing up the whole thing. I messed up the whole thing. And they were, fear- <laughs> like, there are a lot of students who were really upset with my presence and the presence of the other, like, total 20 black people at that school. Like, my graduating class was 116. We had, at most, 10 black students in my graduating class. Um, So, yeah, like all of us were told either we were there because of affirmative action, um, because we weren't qualified to be there, or we were there just for sports, because a lot of us did play sports. I was constantly mistaken for a basketball player. I guess I am tall and I'm also black, but I was not. I was a tennis player. (laughs) Um, uh, But yeah, like all of us were accused of that throughout our time there. Um, And that was also something that followed me to college. Like I went to a predominantly white institution for college and yeah there's always the accusation that, oh well, like you don't need to worry, but like you're just here because of affirmative action, so of course, you don't care about grades. And i like, all right, that's thank you for all of that because I wouldn't outwardly you know like join in on the whole misery poker that happens in a lot of elite institutions where like you have to show that you are working harder than everyone else and you're more overburdened and like I've never enjoyed doing that. And so the assumption was that I didn't care because I never cared about grades because I would just automatically get a place wherever I wanted because of affirmative action um, so that was trash. Um, those are my experiences. What are your experiences?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean... Because
0: you're not going to have me put all of that out there by myself,
1: right? No, 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 no. So, you know, my edul- my education, my education experience <laughs> um, had some similarities and some differences. So... Um, you know, I grew up in Charlottesville, which is funny because like, now I don't have to explain the social context for that anymore. Yeah, that's,
0: <laughs> it's now just a uh, shorthand.
1: <laughs> so, you know, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, went to predominantly white schools uh, K through 12. I mean, it was a, it was a public school system, um, but one, it was, predominant, it was very heavily white. Interesting thing being that like the state of Virginia shut down the school system for like two years following... Um, the Brown decision. And so there's a a wide, uh, there's a a range of different white flight schools that came up. Um, But in Charlottesville, in Albemarle County in particular, like the public schools are, because long thing about property taxes and all this, whatever, the University of Virginia, public schools are actually really, really good. And so you have a lot of people whose children would otherwise go to private schools going to the public school system. And so what you get as a result of that um, are accusations about, you know, your family You know, being strategic about, you know, why you know why the question of why are you being here, being placed, um, and kind of thinking about ways that your family um, was—I don't even know what the right adjective Um, is—maybe like dishonest about like where you lived or Mm -hmm. how you got into that school system. So not even like you don't belong here at the school; you don't belong in this school system. Right. Um, So like that whole thing, I went to—I mean—as a result of that, um, you know, I went to an HBCU undergrad um for you know a wide around a wide range of reasons um which we don't have to get into um in this episode but um so th- that for me gave me some perspective in time but you know for grad school I went to another PWI um in Boston or in Massachusetts mm-hmm. uh, which is an interesting place um in general and so I think what was very interesting about that experience is that, in my grad program it was just very um kind of selection biased and like who my classmates were. Mm-hmm. The interesting part being that um there was a huge international program um that had a larger number of international students, so there was a there was a class thing um where there might not have been a race thing there was definitely a class thing um and there was definitely, like, anti-blackness in there, which is always interesting to kind of see anti-blackness play out amongst people of color who are yeah. not always from the United States. And yeah. so, like, that's a very interesting thing that happened. Um, but, like, more specifically, like, there were instances, like, you know, had the cops called on me for being in the library, um, things like that, that were not as direct as, like, Fifth graders were to you about, <laughs> <laughs> but we're definitely like you don't belong in this space. So why are you here? Why are you invading our space? I would
0: say getting the cops called on you is pretty direct. Yeah, it's, I mean,
1: especially in the library, I'm like, I like, don't want to be. Here. <laughs> 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 right? Yes, I'm fooling everyone by getting to
0: read books. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah.
1: So, you know, things like that. I think. Um, I, I I guess I don't. And it doesn't mean it didn't happen, but at no point do I think I really had to, I, I didn't feel like I made the argument that I didn't belong there academically, mm-hmm. um, especially in high school, because I was smarter than all of my classmates. Yeah. And I say that, like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, there were people who were definitely better students than me. Sure. But I think I helped myself intellectually, and I think that people didn't want to poke me. Also, I was physically bigger like everybody else, too. So I think that, that there were some protections in that, um, and people not willing to engage with me. I was also very, like, um, militant.
0: What? <laughs> <And> you? <so laughs> in high school? I
1: think it was fair to say that they were not all white people, but white people were definitely afraid to... Um, really challenged me on issues of race because they knew that they weren't prepared for that. And I think, like, I made intentional efforts to demonstrate that, I think, as a a protection tool. Like, don't come to me with this stuff because I will embarrass you.
0: I think there's also, I mean, there's also the gender of it that people are way more comfortable saying horrible things to women of color about the fact that they are women of color than they are to men of color, especially black men.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: And I think just to sort of take it back to you know, how this impacts the Asian American community, I mean, Joyce said that it's an invisible burden to constantly be aware of how you present and how that either fits or doesn't st- fit with this model minority stereotype. And I think that's something that all of us as people of color in America can relate to, that there are a lot of stereotypes that people are automatically assigning to us and a lot of ways that white culture is telling us you are not white and it is something that you are constantly thinking about. And I think unless you can just sort of be around your people and you know be able to just sort of code switch and be comfortable, like it is a constant presence in your mind.
1: You know, it's interesting. That it makes me think of a conversation I had with a classmate of mine from high school. Um, high school and I went to school and like, we had known each other for a long time. Um, and I didn't see, like, I saw him when we graduated from high school, and then I didn't see him again until I was up at Brandeis. And he was at, um, I think he was at BU Law. Is so one of the law schools up there. boy, okay. I'm sorry, James. <laughs> um, he's an attorney now. But anyway, um, we figured out we were in the same city and kind of met up and had drinks. And he was like, you know, um, I didn't realize, one, I didn't realize um, it was interesting, it was two things he, did, he said, I didn't really realize Kind of the racism and issues that you were dealing with As a black person um, At Albemarle High School And then he said, I also didn't realize How I was um, How it was impacting me as well And the different ways that like Race, I didn't see race as being something That was impacting me um, So I thought that was really interesting in you know, kind of thinking about like how you know that association with whiteness um especially for asian americans can you know it's not something that um just because you don't see it just because you don't see um kind of the the model minority myth doesn't mean that like you can look back 10 years and realize these are all the ways that this actually impacted me and i didn't really realize it and like thinking was he saying that he like was trying to be a model minority I don't think I don't want to put those words in his mouth. I think what he was saying was that there are definitely ways that, um, him being Asian American, were like there were things that were impacting him in ways that he didn't realize. And then looking back, like um, realizing then that these were interactions that he had, things that people said to him, um, ways that people treated him that were because of his race, um, but that he wasn't processing because of like the model minority myth and because of um, this association with whiteness and. So I think about like going to you know economic terms, I think about like opportunity loss mm. and like what does it mean if you don't, like we all have that thing that we, you know, regret we didn't respond to or like, and to think back over a decade and be like, I didn't even realize this is something I should have responded to, like that, that's not a good feeling. Um, and it kind of makes you think like, you know, how would I have done things differently? How would I have lived my life differently? Um, would I be a different person would I have gone through things differently had I been more aware of this and so I don't know I'm not you know I'm not Asian American and so I didn't have that experience but I can identify as a person of color that there's like just some, some ways that like psychologically like that is just damaging and harmful yeah So, I think the solutions for this one are interesting because um, I think like affirmative action is a solution. Right, <laughs> So keep doing that.
0: <laughs> the thing is, I remember somebody saying, you know, like quotas are not. You know, we don't like quotas as a country. But if your goal is to get more people of color or more women or something in a stereotypically white, stereotypically male-dominated field, like quotas work for that. Like quotas work to ensure diversity diversity should not be the end goal at all. Like quotas don't do anything to make sure that it's an inclusive place to work mm-hmm. or that like you are creating equity in any way or making sure that you are not recreating harmful power dynamics, but like, yeah. Affirmative action works and
1: quotas also work. Yeah. So I mean, I think, but I think that speaks to a point of like, there are some like big picture things and I think that like, it's important to like name those big picture things and the limitations of what um, the actual solutions are Like, so the limitations of actual affirmative action are the actual quotas. So, like, big picture, we should, everybody should have, this is such a, you know, cliche, but, like, equal opportunity. So, like, Mm -hmm. let's eliminate systemic barriers. Um, And, you know, if you want to know how to eliminate systemic barriers that keep people in certain places, then listen to episodes 1 through 16. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We solved it for you. (laughs) Uh, so, like all you know I think that that's at the root of this right so if we're if the issue is that there's unequal representation in certain spaces, then like there's some systemic barrier pieces there's some um overt you know discriminatory pieces, which I think is um, both a cultural fix and a you know policy legal fix um, at the same time. I think that there are some specific things, so like short of that, short of like fixing the culture short of. Um getting rid of the concept of whiteness, which I think are you know things that we should pursue, there's other things. so when we talk about education in particular, um, you know standardized testing, so eliminating standardized testing, so there's lots of studies that show that um rather than showing or rather than measuring actual knowledge, mm-hmm. standardized testing is a better indication of a family's of kids family's wealth, yep. um, or other factors that are not, <laughs> that are not actually being right. tested. Um, and also like the, um, education level of the parents, I think like wealth. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, not, I think, yeah. I think like one of the, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and there's been, I think at least on the higher education level, like there's been a s- slight movement to eliminate, um, GREs or SITs or whatever. Um, so that's good. But, uh, when we talk about like, Graduation rates and GPAs, and also, like that's all also associated to how we test and what we measure and what we value as education um, and intelligence and all this stuff as well. So, like that's one way that we could actually, you know, eliminate some of the lack of diversity that we may see, at least in regards to education. Um, I think there's another question though about what is affirmative action. Um, and it's this idea of compelling interest, um, versus, um, correcting past inequities. Mm -hmm. Um, so as of right now with court, with, um, case law, you know, affirmative action is defined as increasing diversity because there's value in that. Um, and you've spoken to this, but I think that that's a, I think it's a question, right? Like, I don't think the assumption is that that's what affirmative action is supposed to be, um. And what does it mean to increase diversity for the sake of everybody um, while still not, you know, repairing past wrongs? Um, And so to that point, like, we still need 40 acres and a mule or whatever the (laughs) equivalent of that you want to make.
0: Right. Based on inflation.
1: (laughs) Inflation, the value of a mule. um, (laughs) The value of property. (laughs) So, like, you know, we need reparations because that's the starting place for all these conversations. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, re- reparations is yes. a solution here, if that's appropriate. <laughs> Especially
0: uh, since, yeah, like all of us, like all communities of color who are here have been harmed explicitly and intentionally. Right. And so if we keep on pretending that that hasn't happened, then we're not actually gonna do anything. Like we're not actually
1: gonna change right. anything. You don't put a bandaid on a bleeding artery.
0: <laughs> Be like, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> <It's the laughs> and art. also stop complaining, please. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I would say another solution is, and this is sort of a nerdier solution, but disaggregate your damn data when you're talking about the Asian American community. Like don't keep on saying the Asian American community is making this amount of money, or you know, like has this education level, or this level of health insurance. Like there are huge discrepancies within that giant umbrella. And if we don't actually make it visible, then we're just gonna keep on not solving it. And so the problems are just gonna get worse and these communities are going to continue to be harmed and continue to be ignored and silenced.
1: And can I add to that like I mean we're coming up on the on the census. Um and there's been there's been efforts, not efforts, I mean it's been there's been efforts to defund, um to undermine the census to um do things that is going to result in an undercount of brown communities mm-hmm.
0: to use it as a weapon um yeah.
1: And, like, so, like, in my work, when I'm looking at data, oftentimes it's not dis- disaggregated um, enough. And so, you know, as a as a thing of convenience, like, we don't always disaggregate. And that's a huge disservice. Um, and so, like, we should actually invest public dollars to do that.
0: Yeah. And also, like, what counts as data is something right. that, yeah. like, the idea that there are specific, like, if we just don't have numbers on a specific community, then we just stop talking about that community as opposed to you know, maybe going to talk to them and get anecdotal data, like the, just numbers on like how many people are in a community or you know how much money they're making, that's not the only thing that counts as data. So right. just widen the scope of what you included in your categorization of data and be more proactive about reaching out to communities that are underrepresented by those numbers.
1: Right. So, um, what are you reading?
0: So, uh, the first thing I want to highlight is, as Brian mentioned, we are not Asian American and we have been talking about something that's not really our personal experience. And so I want to point people to two episodes of Still Processing, um, the podcast we want to be when we grow up, uh, called "Asians American Asian Americans Talk About Racism and We Listen, parts one and two, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, I really, really recommend that. Just so I mean, I was really grateful to talk to my friends about their experience, but again, I don't want to be misrepresenting or talking about an experience that's not my own. So highly recommend those episodes. Um, also recommend a code switch article, the model minority myth, again, used as a racial wedge between Asians and blacks, which we kind of talked about on this episode. And this is in response to an article by Andrew Sullivan from the New York Magazine, who is just a professional racist, and was talking about how Asian Americans are among the most prosperous, well-educated, and successful ethnic groups in America, and it's because um, they are doing everything right and black people are choosing to do everything wrong is the gist of his article. And so this Code Switch article breaks down why that's wrong and racist and stupid. Um, And then finally, I recommend an article from... Teen Vogue, who, as they have been for the last two years for some reason, on the front lines Help, of the woke of the woke, <laughs> <laughs> of the woke <laughs> movement. Um, and this article is called, Why the Trope of Rebellious Asian Women with Colorful Hair is Problematic. And so that's, again, about the hair streak Asian that Joyce found herself falling into and sort of exposed me to when she said, she's like, have you seen Scott Pilgrim? You remember Knives Channel? I was like, oh my god, I have seen this trope. This is a whole thing. Um, so yeah, I will be linking those on our What We're Reading page. What are you reading?
1: So um, I have a couple of suggestions. Um, one is when, when Affirmative Action Was White by Ira Katznelson. I feel um, like you've recommended that. I before. have, and I'm trying to remember which episode. Um, in an earlier episode, I think we mentioned it. Um, essentially, it's, just, uh, it's a book talking about kind of post-World War, um, affirmative action for white people. Which wasn't called affirmative action; it was called things like the GI Bill, um, and so a lot of it's around housing policy. But um, I think it's you know if you don't read the whole thing, just read a couple of excerpts or whatever. But it's it's good; um, it's kind of a good kind of perspective to talk about like whiteness um, and how whiteness really shapes the way that we understand and view public policy. Um, another is for discrimination by Randall Kennedy. There's an asterisk here because Randall Kennedy, I remember in my mind, did something. <laughs> <laughs> but i i cannot remember is this something wrote for discrimination is no that no you he 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 said something that was a bit problematic and i don't remember what it was mm. and i haven't been able to find out what it was i think it was something kind of more just like dismissive of um i think it was something that was just kind of like an old kind of conservative thing that a. Uh, like old conservative black man type of thing. So there's an asterisk there. But I don't know, because I don't remember what it was. But, okay. you know, grand Assault for Discrimination kind of talks about, um, it actually goes into the history of affirmative action a little bit and talks about like the idea of um, reverse, discriminata- reverse discrimination, positive discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's kind of helpful in, in thinking about like, what are the different arguments that people are making? And, um, you know, so that's that's something that you could read. I would actually say read the first two chapters and maybe just put it away after that. <laughs> okay. um, the only other thing I'll say is um, in thinking about whiteness, I think Ta Coates kind of does a good job in writing about whiteness um, okay. in "Letters to My Son" um, and other things that he writes. But um, so, I mean, I, I really like his take on whiteness. He does a good job of defining it, and you know, with mentioning Ta Coates, I feel like everything he learned about whiteness from baldwin he learned from baldwin and yeah. so i would read baldwin all of it
0: all of um, baldwin
1: i mean the fire the, the fire this time all of the i mean all of the stuff um are just like go and read baldwin quotes honestly and like that's good too so read some baldwin on whiteness yeah
0: okay that is our show thanks for listening our music was produced by dj7 keys you can find him and more of his music on instagram at mr underscore seven keys that's the numeral seven you can find us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, and wherever else podcasts are found. But we are still, as of this qu- recording, not on SoundCloud. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook under at the podcast. That's A-T-T-H-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Our email address is at of at gmail.com. Please email us. And our website is at-the-intersection.com if you like what you're hearing please rate and review us on itunes stitcher or facebook or
1: or if you would like to you can go to anchor.fm and you can actually get some change yeah um and that really helps us sustain the website um it helps us you know make this actual podcast um
0: (laughs) production costs promotion costs the whole nine it is really really helpful and the people who are like we thank our sustainers
1: so much for everything means a lot Mm y'all
0: Until next time.
1: All right. Take it easy.